following is my conversation with William Eginton, a distinguished literary critic and philosopher renowned for his insightful exploration of theatricality, fictionality, literary criticism, psychoanalysis, ethics, religious moderation, and theories of mediation. With a commitment to interdisciplinary inquiry, Eginton's work reflects a nuanced understanding of complexities of human experience. His contribution extends to the realms of psychoanalysis and ethics, demonstrating a thoughtful engagement with the intricacies of these fields. A prolific writer, Agenton's impact reaches beyond academia, fostering dialogue and understanding in areas often marked by discord, such as religious moderation. His concise yet profound analysis showcases a keen intellect, making him a respected voice in contemporary literacy, criticism, and philosophy. Hi, William. How are you? I'm fine, Neha. How are you doing? I am great. And thank you for coming uh, on for the interview. I wanted to start right off the bat, talk about your new book, The Rigors of Angels. It picks three specific personalities, re very reputable in their own uh, fields, and like kind of connected but not and like also like you know philosophers it's like they have there's so many philosophers why did you pick this one specifically so can you give me a brief on why them what's the connection it's and great, then it's a great question yeah yeah i yeah, know it's a great question um in fact i had the idea for the book which developed over really a quarter century of thinking and teaching and reading and writing about these uh, the topics. Uh, the topic was there for long before I settled on these particular three thinkers. What happened was I needed to find the right vehicle. And um, at the beginning, I sketched out a very uh, expansive notion for the book that um, ended up, it would have had probably a similar number of chapters, but each of those chapters would have been devoted to a different thinker from a different period of time, uh, going back as far as Zeno of Alea and coming up to as far as as probably uh, Heisenberg and Einstein would have been the last couple of chapters. All of these characters ended up in the final version, but I needed something that would be more of a coherent through line. And I wanted to find characters who would be compelling, um, whose lives would uh, allow me enough material, there would be enough information in their biographies that I could use the craft of narrative, non narrative nonfiction to bring the audience along on a story of, of philosophical discovery. The other thing that was extremely important to me was that I, um, because I am a humanist who loves science and philosophy and literature, I wanted to have my approach to the fundamental problem of how the human being encounters, makes sense of uh, reality, be approached from three radically different fields. So I really wanted um, a scientist. I wanted, you know, some kind of a scientist. I wanted a philosopher and I wanted someone who was deeply um, involved in, in, in words and poetry and language. Uh, and then I realized uh, in thinking through this as I was wrestling with, well, who could these three figures be? I was also, I have to admit, deeply influenced by the structure, the idea of, of, of the great Douglas Hofstetter book, uh, Gödel Escherbach from a good 30 years ago. Um, which had also taken three completely different people, in his case, a musician, a mathematician, and a, and a, a, a pictorial artist, and 
brought them together to tell a story. This would be a completely different story, the one that I was telling. And yet this, I really was attracted to that idea of, of weaving together um, figures from different fields. And then I was reminded that about a decade or more ago, I had published a little piece. It had Borges in the title, but it was really about th these three uh, thinkers. And it was in the New York Times in their uh, philosophy forum called The Stone. And I went back and I said, there they are. It's Borges, it's Kant, and it's uh, it's Werner Heisenberg. And it was just the, the briefest sketch of the ideas that would eventually come into this book but the impact and the importance of each of those thinkers was there and i said that's it this is what i have to do and then i just you know fell into a long-term project several years of of reading much more in depth about not only their work i mean in the case of kant um this was someone i'd studied extensively and in the case of borges i've been writing about him for years heisenberg i really had to do a lot of work on to catch up with um and so I did. I, I I studied the quantum mechanics. I um, I delved into his biography. I read his his writings. I I knew that there were a lot of other physicists who were going to be part of the story that I was telling. So I was reading about them and 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 great stories about their interactions. And I read a lot. And Einstein ends up being sort of a secondary force. How could you tell the story without mm -hmm. reckoning with uh, with Einstein? So a lot of reading of Einstein's own work. None of this was necessarily completely new. I'd been teaching in my teaching. I would teach texts by both of them, but especially texts by Einstein. I had taught um, relativity for humanists for uh, many, many years in, in one version or another. So I was able, I was ready and really wanted a platform in which I could also, um, you know, use my skills as a storyteller, uh, what I hope are my skills as a story, storyteller to help convey the complexity and beauty, beauty of, of Einstein's theory of relativity as well. And so this was another, you know, excuse uh, that, that this book offered for me to be able to do that. But that's how that ended up being these three characters and why they came from such different perspectives. Mm. But why the rigor of angels? That's a way... Mm, the rigor? Yeah. <laughs> the rigor of angels is a quotation, actually. It comes from uh, from Borges from the end of a, an extraordinary story uh, by Borges called Plun Ukva Orbis Tertius. And it's a story about a vast conspiracy theory that um, that uh, is woven by uh, uh, sort of a small army of intellectuals over, over several centuries. Um, the, the purpose of which is sort of uh, not just to create an entire country and culture, but ultimately to create a planet. Um, and um, to do it in all of, you know, to out of... Uh, intentionally build every possible system that would be involved in a whole new species uh, of life. So new mathematics, new religion, new mythologies, new uh, 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 languages, new ways of seeing the world. And what Borges says, he writes this uh, extraordinary and kind of eerie postscript at the end of the book, and he 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 makes it a proleptic pro, pro, uh, uh, postscript. So he he pretends that he's writing from seven years in the future from when he's actually writing, and the narrative voice, who is Borges himself, um, reports back to us from a world that has been destroyed by this idea. Uh, the, the, and that he says ultimately in explaining it in this postscript. So this voice, which is you can kind of imagine is walking through this post-catastrophic uh, uh, landscape, reports back and he says, in some ways, reality had to crumble. Uh, it crumbled because of the force of this idea, because humans forget and forget again. They, there's rigor in the world. They can find rigor in the world, but they forget and forget again that it is a rigor of chess masters and not of angels. 
In other words, that the rigor that we find in the world, be they scientific laws, ways of explaining the world are always constructions necessarily of our own reason. And it's important for us to recognize that they are constructions of our own reason, because when we make the mistake of thinking that they were planted there beforehand, that their rigor is not us, not made of the rigor of chess, chess masters following rules, but it is a rigor planted there by some fire being or greater being that leads us into what Kant would call fanaticism, uh, uh, fundamentalism. It leads us into ways of interpreting the world that are not only ultimately going to be scientifically wrong, they're also going to be politically dangerous. So you, you speak about Kant and then you also speak about Jorge and his ideas. What is the story that you were trying to tell to them? So the story is, is the story of, of, of hubris of people, scientists, philosophers, theologians, um, who have failed to recognize the limitations of human reason and have bumped into problems of their own making, if you will. And also the story of these three particular, why are they heroes? Well, they're not heroes because they were great men. They're not heroes because they were particularly ethical. Um, they were all deeply, deeply flawed in, in kind of marvel marvelous and interesting ways. And at the same time, they're heroes in this story because their philosophy, their literature, their science was all about recognizing the inherent limits to our knowledge. And in so doing, actually coming up with better literature, better philosophy, and better science in the end. You discuss in the book the fascination of paradoxes, paradoxes by all three of them. How do you see the interplay between paradoxes and uh, antinomies and the exploration of reality in their works? So why they have this fascination with, and here we can, I think, for the level of this conversation, kind of use antinomy, which is Kant's specific word for a kind of paradox and paradox interchangeably. But... Um, what they each re realize in their own way is that precisely by by making the mistake of failing to realize, to use Heisenberg's formulation, that when we do science, we're not actually taking a picture of nature itself, right? We're taking a picture of nature as it reveals itself to our instruments of knowledge, our instruments of science, uh, the, our ways of knowing the world. Our scientific picture of the world is ultimately a scientific picture of the way that we picture the world. And that's a very seems like a very technical and ultimately it's an extremely important distinction because when we fail to do that when we allow to use now Kant's terminology reason to overstep its natural limitations well there's going to be signs uh that we're doing that and one of the signs is that we will fall into paradoxes of certain kinds and and Kant was the most systematic in in designating what those paradoxes look like and he got them from the history of philosophy he got them from going back to people like Zeno of Alea, who accompanied Parmenides in his uh, debates with Socrates and, 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 and who left impressions of the way that, uh, that thinking incorrectly about the world would lead to paradox. Uh, he left them in the, in the Platonic dialogues, traces of this, sort of, uh, of this sort of mistaken thinking. And Kant, I think, very, very systematically realized came to a realization as he was in the long process of writing what would ultimately be the most important uh, uh, book of philosophy of the last millennium, uh, the critique of pure reason, that that form of mistake, that form of paradox is a 
reminder to us that we've made a category mistake in thinking about the world. Uh, and for Kant, this was a very specific one, that we have allowed reason to overstep its bounds, that we've used the tools that are intended to analyze, uh, explain the phenomenal world, a world extended in space and time. We've used it to try and look at all of existence without uh, uh, the, you know, as if it were not uh, measurable in space and time. And that's where the, uh, the paradoxes that he calls antinomies come from. And then what do you recommend from like, you know, uh, the analysis of it all? I know it's almost like overanalyzing itself is the issue here. Yeah, I think it's it. what what one recommends as a result is is humility, is caution, is is analyzing one's own position first. Right. We're, we're living in some strange way in an age of critique, uh, in an age where everyone says they can do their own research, where everyone says, um, you know, doubt what's being told to you. But what is seldom, I think, really analyzed is that the way this is conveyed, um, this kind of sense of critique of doubt, everything that's told to you is, in fact, the most hubristic, uh, 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 non-humble uh, version of, of, of that mandate, because basically it's saying, ultimately, don't doubt yourself, don't doubt your intuition, don't doubt what you already believe. Whatever you've swallowed to this point, that's ultimately true, and you can doubt everything else around you. This advice, if you will, that's channeled through these thinkers is exactly the opposite. This says, no, first and foremost, doubt your own certainty. Hmm? Where, where did you, you get this idea? Where hmm? Where do you think that humanity has somehow lost the plot then? Because again, these great thinkers and philosophers are saying, you know, maybe have some hubris and we don't seem to have that as a collective. And and you're absolutely right. And I think that that one of the examples that I'm trying to bring to this is how is how easy it is to fail to see that. And because there's other great heroes in this book, Einstein, you know, I have nothing but the most extraordinary admiration for him. But he was also led astray by this, what to use Borges's term, this belief that the rigor he found in the world was the rigor of angels. Um, and he even used theological language that, uh, you know, Niels Bohr would eventually have to say to him, will you please stop telling uh, uh, dear God? what to do with the world right oh. uh, you don't know that but but einstein felt sure that he was when einstein and he felt um he felt reaffirmed on many occasions in 1919 when he got the news and he was sitting with a graduate student uh i think in berlin uh and he got the news that um the arthur eddington expedition had confirmed his uh, experimentally general relativity to the exact degree with the, the curvature of light around uh, uh, um, uh, 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 but through gravitational lensing, the graduate student said, um, well, you don't seem very surprised. Uh, what if you had been wrong? And he said, I would have felt, felt sorry for the dear Lord. <laughs> I mean, so this is he's a marvelous and funny character and absolutely brilliant beyond compare. But it's if even he can, in, in a sense, suffer from the kind of hubris that assumes that everything has to bend to your will because that's the way it must be out there in the world because reality is a certain way as opposed to this is this these are the tools that we use to analyze something called reality and they're potentially going to change and they're uh they're always up for uh for revision then uh my goodness if he could fall to that uh, that temptation no wonder that we constantly need reminding you have briefly mentioned in your book the story of Solomon. How does his experience with memory relate to the broader themes of memory, perception, and the nature of reality in your book? Can you first... You mean like, Yes. 
Shereshevsky, the, yes. the 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 Russian journalist. Yes. It's a fascinating story, and I I, uh, I begin the story of Solomon Shereshevsky, who was a Moscow-based journalist in the 1920s, um, in part just because of the wonderful happenstance that I'm telling a lot of these stories, at least the 20th century, the the science stories, um, and and Borges' story precisely in the 1920s. So the book begins in 1927 um, as as uh, Heisenberg's on the verge of of, uh, of coming up with what would eventually carry his, you know, be his most famous theory, the uncertainty principle. Um, but uh, in it's around the same time that Sharashevsky, this journalist, uh, gets kind of called in uh, to his boss's office and uh, and gets upbraided for, um, for not seeming to care in meetings. He's not you know, he's not taking notes. He doesn't seem to be paying attention. And Sharashevsky looks surprised. And he says, well, why would I need to take notes? And the boss says, well, to remember what I'm telling you to do. And Sharashevsky says, I know exa exactly what you told me. And then he proceeds verbatim without missing a single word to recite back to his boss every single thing that was said in that meeting. And the boss said, well, this is nuts. So he sends him to have his head examined, essentially. Um, and Alexander Luria, the great uh, neuroscientist, sort of one of the fathers of the uh, of the field, as a young uh, scientist in Moscow, is one of the first to start, um, you know, testing him. And he says, after several weeks of testing, he says, I've actually come to the conclusion that there are no limits to this man's memory. He can remember absolutely everything. And why I tell this story, in part, is because of when it's happening, but also because it inspires Borges um, to write a story uh, several decades later, or not even, you know, like a decade and a half later, if at most, uh, uh, that is, is at the beginning of the collection that will ultimately launch him into world fame. And that story is called Funes the Memorius, and it's about a man who has an accident and as a result of his accident loses the ability to forget. Um, and what Borges so beautifully, in his very Borgesian way of taking a situation and then pushing it to its absolute extreme in, in order to examine our fundamental assumptions under, underlying how we think about, uh, for example, perception, memory, knowledge in the world, he demonstrates that, um, you know, far beyond the question of analyzing one particular man and memory, he, he demonstrates that our very idea of knowledge as a kind of picture of the world that can get more and more in focus and more and more perfect um, is fundamentally flawed. What he demonstrates is that if you have someone who can't forget, it's exactly the same thing as having someone who can't remember. If you have someone who can't um, uh, fail to perceive absolutely everything, it's exactly the same as someone who can't perceive anything because our very knowledge of the world depends on at least a minimal distance, a minimal slippage, uh, um, a minimal blurring in order for us to actually have knowledge of anything, which means necessarily by virtue of its very basic components, knowledge must be incomplete. Hmm? And that idea that knowledge must be incomplete, that Borges conveys to us logically through storytelling, is conveyed philosophically in Kant and conveyed scientifically and experimentally in Heisenberg's work. I might be completely reaching uh, on this idea, but would it make sense that evolutionarily humans are meant to forget? And also that kind of humbles us so that we keep on looking for more information or learning and that is in itself a design not a flaw hmm. i mean that's one way of thinking about it you know a a, a creature that <laughs> that that somehow didn't forget first of all i would say from from my perspective is is in some sense absolutely impossible uh because knowledge of any kind uh if you're not god 
um, some sort of a notion of an omniscient uh, being who does, isn't affected by time whatsoever, um, then any kind of a being that has knowledge, any kind of performance of a measurement in the world requires distance from what's being measured by definition of what it is. And that distance is going to require fallibility of, uh, of some kind. But to build on your point, most certainly what is the case is that uh, uh, that, that beings um, have to evolve in ways that the errors that they make make sense. Uh, in, in essence, that there's a self-correcting mechanism that we build on our um, uh, not only our knowledge of the world but our mistakes of the uh, about the about the world. In some kind of beautiful sense, um, uh, evolution is sort of a mistake. Uh, um, it's built. It's an engendering machine built on on a history of mistakes, right? Uh, of trial and error. That's what mutation is all about: change and adapt change and adapt. And that's why I think it is, in fact, Darwin's theory is an absolutely beautiful model for how knowledge works. Um, and uh, because built into it, uh, baked into the very idea of progress is constant error, constant error. Mm. Your book touches on Heisenberg's political engagement during the Nazi regime. How do you interpret the relationship between his scientific brilliance and his seemingly cautious political stance during that time? Mm, I, no, I do. And, uh, you know, I say, look, it does, what this should also tell us is that, you know, being cautious uh, uh, scientifically, which Heisenberg definitely was, can have very good benefits in all sorts of ways, but it's not like a panacea. It certainly mm. didn't help him make, if you will, the right decision. If we look back in history and we see uh, uh, Einstein, who was radical uh, in his denunciation of Hitler and gave up his German passport and was in, in, emigrated to the United States and, uh, and brought his knowledge with him, as did so many other uh, Jewish scientists, um, or Schrodinger, who was not Jewish and hated the Nazis and left and went to uh, Dublin, history looks more kindly on them. Uh, in fact, I've had people, you know, it's an interesting uh, historical debate about the intentions of Heisenberg, whether he, uh, in fact, um, sort of scuttled the uh, what would have been a potentially productive um, uh, nuclear program under Nazi Germany, or whether he simply, um, you know, was, uh, was what did he, uh, he was called by... Some of his interlocutors, uh, like Samuel Gutschmidt, referred to the smug Heisenberg uh, clique in uh, in Germany that were just so full of their own brilliance that they 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 didn't do the hard work that the Americans did. This is a huge debate right now, right? Um, and the idea being that I mean uh, the example that I was just about to give, someone I know I, I get very very nice comments in general about my book but someone who was who was writing me to say look I really enjoyed this but ultimately Heisenberg was a Nazi and someone else um you know within a week was also writing me and saying you give too much credit to the uh, Heisenberg was a Nazi theory he really was doing so much to undermine the uh, uh the efforts of uh, uh towards weaponization of nuclear we don't know that's the point we really don't know it is a robust uh, historical debate right now. But, you know, there's no question that Heisenberg comes out with his hands a lot dirtier in this debate than people who cleanly cut the cord and left uh, uh, and left and left Germany. Um, so, you know, that caution, if in some sense, you know, that wait and see attitude that I refer to probably didn't serve him that well in this particular case. But don't you also agree that sometimes the truth is a lot more murkier than it 
seems. We might be yeah, like, yeah, there yeah. are so many layers to each decision that a human being makes. And then when you look at it from a further away lens with like, you know, lesser information, which is when we do like, you know, forget things that does affect what judgment we make on somebody else's decisions or actions. And that same way, historically, everything that we have seen throughout history be it like you know empires crumbling in front of our eyes and we're like this was the final like you know that straw that broke the camel's back but it could be a lot more than that and we have we're missing a lot of like you know key factors uh absolutely i couldn't agree more and this is one of the points i'm making towards the end when i talk about the moral judgment that we cast on historical characters and i make the point that i think in a very beautiful and also humble uh, way an older Samuel Gutschmidt whose own parents were killed by the Nazis and um, he was furious at Heisenberg he was also furious at Heisenberg Heisenberg hadn't had attempted from within Germany to intercede his letter had come too late who knows if the Nazis would have paid any attention quite frankly he was very uh, he was very suspect already under that regime and they weren't paying much attention to him anyway but he tried uh, his letter came too late Gutschmidt's parents went to Auschwitz um, uh, uh, Gutschmidt, you know, stood at at Auschwitz after the war, weeping over uh, at the at the place where his parents had been killed, and murdered, and he he blamed Heisenberg in part. Um, and at the end of his life, after a long debate between the two and public exchange of letters and acrimony, Heisenberg died, and uh, and Gutschmidt ended up writing his obituary uh for the times and and really said and ultimately he was a brilliant and good man uh so he he came to a completely different conclusion at the end of his life and i think adopting that kind of humility basically not only humility towards what we can know in science but a humility as as far as what can we know about another's heart and their decisions you know you mentioned that when we choose what we observe we insert our freedom into nature how does this concept tie into the idea that we are active participants in the universe we discover? Yeah. So that idea also has to do with um, what's called today the anthropic principle. And the anthropic principle is is one of the ways of dealing with what is often referred to as the, the fine-tuning problem. Um, so, you know, you, you look at the extraordinary laws of physics that we've discovered. And then you start working your way backwards as a cosmologist would do, because you realize the universe changes over time, that it's growing. And so you dial everything back and you try and get a picture of the universe at the earliest moments. And then you have to sort of decide, well, what changes, you know, if, if, if the fundamental laws of, 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 of nature were somewhat different. If the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force were tuned to this degree instead of this degree, and, and then you start playing with those, you realize, well, that wouldn't have worked out very well for us. Uh, this would have created, um, you know, a world that, a world, a universe that consists of exclusively black holes, or this one would have been such an even universe that mass and matter never would have come together. We wouldn't have been planets. That wouldn't have worked out very well for us. And so people start to play with numbers and say, my God, chances that the universe exists the way that it exists right now are astronomically slim. So what could possibly explain that? And one answer is, well, God, that, he must have just sort of created it the way that it is. And that's, you know, that's, that's the universe according to uh, intelligent design, which is sometimes known as the strong anthropic principle. Then others come along and they say, well, no, this is not a convincing us. We don't want to kind of pull God out of the gaps in order to explain everything. But if universes were being birthed all the time 
in every possible way. If nature was just trying out different kinds of, um, of, of, of combinations of physical laws, and we found ourselves living in the kind of universe that would support our existence, that's sort of not as surprising, right? Mm -hmm. that, that, that would make sense. So if you imagine kind of infinite universes and we just happen to find ourselves in one of the very, very few that supports uh, human life. I mean, the, one of the examples, I don't remember I've used it as a book. I think I used a different one. But if you're, um, you're a blade of grass out on a golf course and you get hit by a golf ball, you can say, what are the chances? <laughs> well, yes. but if, if it's just the golf ball hitting some blade of grass, the chances are pretty close to 100%. Right. Mm. So that's that's the difference between those two. What I come down on is very different in this book. I say, why do you think it's necessary to be calculating these uh, these chances in the first place? It sort of has the, the nonsensical ring to it of saying, uh, wow, out of the eight billion people existing in the world right now, how lucky I am to have born, been born to be me. Well, no, you just are you. Uh, and there was no one prior to you floating up in the sky that was part of like a an eight billion uh, slot roulette table that you could then say, this makes a lot of sense. This is uh, what I refer to as when we then do these calculations, we insert the freedom, namely that 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 you are here and this now, and you always have to make your cha your choices and your paths from this particular point in time, we sort of try to erase that. And yet at the same time, when we do that, we install that freedom somewhere else, uh, namely outside of space and time at the beginning of the universe in some way. Do you think that maybe like us, us human beings who have this need and this like urge to understand and given the fact mm -hmm. that we don't have the answers, God almost plays a placeholder for us where we go like until we figure it out, it is quite possibly random chance or God or mm. any, you know, creator of it yeah. all, because otherwise it does not make sense. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what scientists or uh, some scientists or philosophers or people who think about these call, like uh, I'm quoting Marcelo Gleiser here, but, but he, I'm, I think got the term from, from elsewhere as well. I think it's existed for a long time. The God in the gaps argument. Mm. Uh, so Science gets so far, it comes to a place where it doesn't understand something and it says, okay, there's God, right? So mm. we'll, we'll let God be there for a little while until you back yeah. up. But no, we've explained that now. And then you say, no, no, well, God's over here, right? Because there's mm. always going to be a gap. Of course, my, which very much agrees with Marcelo, um, my approach is to say, no, the gaps are inherent. You're not going to get rid of the gaps. So you don't need to put God there. You just you just accept that knowledge has, it comes with necessary gaps. Uh, and those gaps are always going to mutate, always going to change. So you're, you're not going to find like the ultimate gap either, because finding the ultimate gap would kind of be like finding God. Your work spans literature, philosophy, and science. How do you approach bringing these disciplines together? What and what challenges and rewards do you find exploring the intersections in like each different field of study? Yeah, uh, so that I guess the challenges are what you would imagine would be in some ways the obvious challenges, right? It's it's enough work to master one discipline, so you kind <laughs> of need to, to, to extra work in it to, to learn more. Um, you know, I, I I guess I was fortunate in that I found my way. To, you know, my field is really literature and philosophy. Uh, I, I got ultimately, I did an undergraduate in comparative literature. I did a master's in um, in Hispanic literatures. Then I did a PhD and another master's in, in comparative literature. And the field that I, where I did my comparative literature degree was really um, continental philosophy, intellectual history. So I, I, the interplay between literature and philosophy is something that I always done. But before I was 
became interested and before I trained starting as an undergraduate in, in literature and philosophy and languages, I was really what we would call in the States a math and science nerd. So that's, you know, what I did was physics and math um, to the point where in high school I was, you know, going to taking my bike to nearby uh, um, uh, community colleges to take uh, to take math courses. And in fact, uh, by sheer coincidence, and I wish I'd been told at the time, one of the uh, kinds of math that I had to study outside of high school because I didn't have it in high school is linear al algebra which a version of which Heisenberg developed in order to create the the, the matrix uh, uh, mechanics that he defined in, in 1925 as the basis for quantum mechanics. Um, but so there was a lot of math um, and probably there's, I have a mathematical way of thinking most likely. It's sort of deep, deeply ingrained and uh, always this abiding interest in theoretical physics, math, astronomy, and cosmology. So I kept on coming back to it. Um, one of the earliest papers that that I uh, published in the Journal of the History of Ideas in the 1990s, I was still in graduate school when I published it in that, that journal, was about the problem of um, the shape uh, and, and ultimately potentially curvature of the cosmos in, in Dante's uh, Paradiso. Uh, which is something that had been written about by mathematicians and, and scientists. Uh, it required reading Einstein. It required going back and looking and understanding uh, uh, Riemann's um, uh, uh, four-dimensional mathematics, non-Euclidean non, non geometry. Um, so that was work that I've been doing all along. Um, but yes, I, the big challenge is to do it well. I think there's a sort of minimum level of, of facility that one needs to develop in a variety of different fields. Um, and so if, if I have a special calling card, I guess that's what it would be. And how do you see the themes in the rigors of angels resonate with contemporary intellectual and cultural conversations? I think one of them has to do with... Um, you know, the the impact for the relevance for our current political situation, as I kind of said at the beginning implicitly, but I, I think one could say this explicitly as well. Uh, this is a book that invades against the kind of thinking that would allow people to be wrapped up in conspiracy theories and the sort of uh, hubristic attitude that uh, that I think is really generated and, uh, and, and, and fostered by our social media um, environment right now. Uh, which is one that you know the answer because you you know you know the answer before you ask the question. Um, mm. And the approach that I'm constantly developing is no, you ask the questions and you keep on asking the questions, and and ultimately you you really need to question yourself. And why why do you what's the what's the desire structure? What makes you desire to be to to find the answers that uh, um, that you come up with? And uh, you know this is this is something I write about in a different you know a different vector of of books a couple of books that I've written with uh, my good friend and colleague David Castillo uh, including Mediologies in 2016 and then What Would Cervantes Do in uh, in 2018 are really about uh, what we call you know what is called uh, post truth uh, culture post truth politics and I think there's heavy heavy overlap and overlay between if you will the ethical impulses of the rigor of angels as a book and the uh the ethical impulses in those books as well so how do you see this story continuing because right now it does look like you know that we are in the age of over information and it's just keeps on coming but there was a time where it's like you know you there were you know, few media channels it's like it's trusted sources they have been like you know uh rigorously checked before like you know you that information is shared now that 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 like you know that 
that protective cover is gone. And it people look at like, you know, Instagram pages or like, you know, the visibility of a website. If, if it's got this number of views, it's probably correct. How does this story continue? What's the next chapter looking like? My God, I, we have to get to a point where we realize that the the media ecology that we're stuck in right now is, is driving us to further fanaticism, further divisiveness, further error, um, that um, there has to be a retrenchment of some kind. There has to be a return to fundamental principles of checking evidence, uh, of, of, uh, uh, of, of asking that self-critical question before one presumes the critique of others. Um, and, you know, only, only grasping the error of our ways is going to lead us to that, um, you know, and so there are those of us who are kind of shouting out, up, you know, from the top of the hilltops, if you will, trying to get the voice out there that is really, we have to check this, uh, this tendency. But as far as I can tell right now, it's only getting worse. Um, but it doesn't mean that I'm not going to, you know, it doesn't mean that I and David Castillo and so many other people who are trying to get this uh, message across aren't going to try. We're really going to continue trying. But with the rise of artificial intelligence, it's going to get worse. Um, we need checks and guardrails on artificial intelligence. We need to uh, uh, require ultimately legally that everything that's generated by uh, artificial intelligence identify itself as such, um, uh, be it in language and large, large language models or in um, uh, in, in image generation, uh, everything we need to we need to inscribe these in law. And you know, thank goodness the Europeans are usually ahead of us on this. In the United States, the the European Union has just uh, uh, voted on on kind of groundwork legislation in that regard. Whereas you know, in the United States, we're still the wild west because we 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 do tend to let corporations do what they want. And as we just saw with the recent shakeup of uh, of OpenAI. Um, but, you know, if, 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 if a board really tries to rein in um, a, a, a company's, you know, which guy its guiding principle is, mm -hmm. is, is the bottom line, guess what's going to happen? The board's not going to win. Mm -hmm. hmm. yeah. uh, as an author of multiple books, including the one uh, that we've been discussing, what insights or personal reflections have you gained and delved into in the, like, you know, in general across the board and also specific to this book? Like, I, the amount of research and the amount the, your body of work, uh, the uh, philosophers and scientists that you refer to, they I understand like you know you can't condense into one theme, but there could be right. a few things that like you know of course jump out for you. I think you're right. I mean, I, you're absolutely right. First of all, there can't be one through line because there's 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 too many uh, different ones at work. But if you will, I mean, that's one of the reasons why it took me so long to write The Rigor of Angels and why it really was, at least at this point in my life, it's sort of my 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 ultimate statement uh, to the world is I think that that implicit, explicit um contrast between Borges's two ideas there in that one sentence the rigor of angels is a beautiful phrase but it's uh but it's a it's a negative one right he's he's offering us a cautionary tale it's between you know recognizing that the rigor you find in the world is a rigor of chess masters recognizing that it's a rigor of angels that's a lesson that when it hit me when i read that book that that's what he was saying and then and then i reflected back on the story and what was happening in the story and and i saw that this is a book about uh, this is a story. It's a story about what happens to us in politics. It's a story about what happens to us in religion. It's a story about what happens to us in 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 science. I guess that would be the the closest thing to a through line is this idea that remember that the rigor we find out there is 
not really out there, that we are responsible for it. And in so doing, um, develop a certain humility, uh, respect uncertainty. Something that you briefly just said, responsibility. I feel like mm -hmm. that is something that has th been thrown out of the window where you go like, you know, these are my rights. This is what I deserve. We live yeah. in that world. And when it comes to Deeply. like, you know, yeah. us as human beings, what we should be doing, what will help us as a, you know, as a civilization, that is not taken seriously. Do you think that the lessons that nature will teach us because of the consequences of this would be let's just say scary to say the least yeah nature is teaching us some some scary lessons there's no question about it and it is i think you put it very nicely it is about responsibility it is about you know recognizing that it's not happening to us we're out there doing it to ourselves and as, as you're implying right now and i couldn't agree more it has um absolute consequences in the realm of climate and uh and and, and environment uh so that's part of that story as well um, this is not happening to us. We are not victims uh, in, a, in some sort of a pure adulterated say. We are self-victimizing. Um, we are victimizing each other, uh, no doubt about it. We are exploiting and, and, and sifting between those who can protect themselves in the short run, but only in the short run. Uh, and, and those who are suffering the immediate consequences of, of, of those who didn't care and didn't take responsibility. Very, very, very important message to make. What are you working on right now? What uh, interests you? Uh, are there any specific live projects that are like in the pipeline? So in the pipeline, January 11th, a uh, book on the uh, surrealist uh, filmmaker, Alejandro Jodorowsky, um, is coming out with Bloomsbury's Philosophical Filmmaker series. And that's a book that um, that is largely about uh, Khodorovsky's art, but also his practice of his healing practice, which he calls psychomagic. And I use a psychoanalytic framework to analyze and, and sort of enter into conversation with uh, Khodorovsky's practice in that book. It's uh, it's intentionally a shorter book. It's not as long as The Rigor of Angels, about 160 pages as opposed to 400. Um, but it's, uh, you know, something I've been working on for a, for, for a time and, and really have enjoyed uh, something in a completely different vein, if you will. Um, and then uh, long term, because uh, I always have to have something that I'm working on long term. I've just, you know, uh, uh, started talking to people about the, the 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 brand new project, which is I'm tentatively calling work and title, uh, which will change eventually. De anima, so borrowed from um, from the Latin version of, uh, of of Aristotle's On the Soul, um, that will be uh, with a, a sketched out subtitle of um, the search for human or the search for intelligent life in animals, machines, humans, and beyond. Um, so the idea there is so much of the of the current concern around generative AI. Hmm. Um, has been about the possibility of machines taking over humans with their agency, with decision-making. And I'm asking as a cultural historian, intellectual historian, the question of, um, well, if we back away from the current fixation with specific modes of what we're calling artificial intelligence and ask the question, what have different cultures in different times um, presumed about specific nature of the human presumed about the specific nature of intelligence will those vocabularies and those questions um help us see more clearly what we're actually asking when we ask questions like can machines think what do you say 
to like you know the school of people who say that ai or like you know the, the way that like you know we're progressing is just the way that evolution is meant to happen and that like either we you know get on board or get abandoned I would say there's, you know, there's an implicit presumption when you say evolution is meant to happen in a certain way. That's actually not how evolution works. Uh, evolution was not meant by anything. <laughs> it's it's blind, uh, um, and it could be that it goes one way. It could be that it goes the other. Evolution is not an ethical framework. It does not show us a way. It is simply the way things uh, change. So sure, that could be right, but there's no destiny to it. You know, we need to grapple with where we are in the here and now and say, is this a future we want? Is this not a future we want? And I would say right now, what we most need to do is to understand what we are creating, um, to grapple with it, and to use the means at our disposal, which are law, policy, our reason to decide what the limits are and what is acceptable. We've done a really, really bad uh, uh, job so far with massive interventions into the world in the form of, uh, uh, of what we've done to the environment and climate. I think we're on a pathway to do just as, just as much damage with artificial intelligence if we don't watch it. The thing is, unfortunately, they're not leaders or people who are like, you know, policymakers who think in this way. And I don't feel like it's happening anytime soon. It's the way it's going. It's about making profit, like, you know, Your trying short-term gains. It's no, uh, like, like you said, it does not look pretty. But not and not wanting to end on this note, where can people find your work? <laughs> To, 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 to accentuate what you were just saying and to quote another great thinker who was, uh, was also influential for me, although I think he got it from somewhere else as well, uh, and I can't remember. So my attribution right now is limited. Uh, Slavoj Žižek uh, uh, once said, again, probably, probably quoting someone else and thinking about uh, massive catastrophe movies, that it has become easier to imagine the end of civilization, the end of, uh, of, of the planet itself, the end of all life, than it is to imagine a simple change to the structure of capitalism. And there's a reason for that, right? Capitalism doesn't want us to change. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, because there's a profit motive and it's working just fine for, uh, mm -hmm. for those who are reaping, uh, its benefits uh we just have to keep on you know being loud and doing our best and where one can find my work is honestly pretty much you know pretty much anywhere if you google it you'll find it the books are out there uh my most recent book is with uh with pantheon the one that's coming out in in january is with bloomsbury uh previous books have been both with bloomsbury with columbia university press with stanford university press and others and i write in the new york times i write in the la review of books uh, uh among other places and for someone who's just been introduced to your work, where do you mm -hmm. recommend they start? I would say The Rigor of Angels, that oh. book. Mm -hmm. Perfect. That's where I would suggest they go. No. <laughs> Thank you so much for speaking with me. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Neha. It was a real pleasure. I enjoyed our uh, discussion.